Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. With me, as always, is Cynthia Kao. How are you, Cynthia? Hey, Josh. It's been a while. It's been a It minute. has been a while. Uh, what, two months, I think, is what you said while we were getting ready for all this stuff? Yeah, and I've gained a lot of um, Christmas weight and New Year's weight and any kind of celebration weight yeah. <laughs> in the meanwhile. I'm, I'm holding my own. I got that COVID-19 pounds going on right now for myself, so... I've, I can empathize with that. Uh, well, if you are new to the show, welcome. Every week, uh, except for the last two months, we bring in these remarkable people that uh, that are founders, are entrepreneurs, that have one extra thing on their resume, and that is service to our country. And this week, we have a great guest. It's entrepreneur Zach Jones. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I really like the show. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, so, Zach, you know, we really want to just talk about your journey and your story. And the first thing we usually get into is what you did in the military, what branch, and what got, why, the, why the military? All right. Well, um, why the military? There's a couple reasons for that. I've wanted to be in the military since I was about four years old. And I know that because that was the first time I got to meet my uncle who was a Marine and my father was in the air force. And, uh, it was, uh, it was a point of consternation for my father that my uncle had very quickly convinced me that I wanted to be a Marine. Nice. So when, what year did you join? I actually joined, I was 20. That was almost said 2011. It is 2011. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you joined, Likewise. yeah. So you joined 2011. What, what did you do while you were in there? I drove trucks. I was a 3531 motor t operator, as we like to say. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and where did you go? Did you go anywhere or did you just sort of stay stateside? Uh, I went a few places. Um, I didn't do a I didn't do a combat deployment or anything like that. I did go to my first two years were in Okinawa and I did a couple of really cool things there. I actually headed up a motor pool and then I was put in charge of coordinating like training driving. So that was a little bit different than how I imagined it would go, but the good food and island life kind of kind of softens that blow. I would imagine. Oh, Oconus, your first duty station. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome though. It was sweet. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm still hung up on the fact that you pick Marine Corps over Air Force because I was Air Force. So I want to know the conversation you had with your dad and how that went. Well, I will go ahead and say that I chose the Marine Corps and it was not the smartest option. So there might be a reason why I went into the Marine Corps. Uh, the, the conversation, um, he, there was, and I'm sorry, Josh, but, uh, the, the conversation was, I'd prefer you to go into the Marine Corps than the Navy. I'd really like to see you in the air force. <laughs> yeah. You know, I did three years in the Navy and I enjoyed my time in the Navy and looking back, I look back fondly on my time in the Navy, but while I was in, I was counting down the days of like, let's, get this show over with i'm done <laughs> i had a, i had a similar experience no worries yeah uh what did you learn during that process like what surprised you about being in the marines wow um 
basically everything to tell you the truth i did not 100 understand what going into the marine corps was um my uncle who had convinced me to be a marine had passed at that time i couldn't ask him basically any questions about that i didn't know any other marines it was by far it prepared me for every single tough thing i ever had to do after that in a way that was just like oh well i wasn't through boot camp so i can handle this i say as i get ready to go camping for however long yeah it's i don't think anything can prepare you for what happens when you get to boot camp it's just sort of and that's kind of the expectation right you're just it's shock and awe you go in Mm -hmm. and they break you down and the point is to build you up the way you're supposed to operate when you got done with boot camp and you got out into the field did anything about that experience surprise you or or what was you, you know did how how was your experience out in the field um that was uh, it was hmm, that's pretty tough so when i went to i went to okinawa okinawa was my first duty station and it was very strange for me because i was expecting to go to a duty station where we would deploy and we'd be out in the sand and it would be really hot and it'd just be you know a non-stop action fest thank you recruiters for telling me that one however (laughs) things kind of went a little bit differently um i found out that you know a lot of times they tell you they that you don't have to worry about oh you don't have to worry about thinking you don't have to worry about these different things but i could not help myself but see a problem and go man i really want to fix that somehow i i think we can change these things and as you can probably guess change is not a uh it doesn't much happen in in most military situations yeah yeah no definitely you know we all have the stories in the military no matter how long you were in i know i've I've got the stories where it was like you you can tell when that time that period happened where you kind of pivoted and you grew up right i i joined the navy really early i was 17 when i i joined but there were times where, like when I went to Karachi, Pakistan, and I look back on it, and those are the times, and seeing that stuff really forced me to grow up and learn more about the world. Can you think about a time when you were in the military that you had that kind of experience where you're like, holy shit, the world is crazy. Now I know, and I'm kind of I'm coming in, into my own. Um, yeah, there, there were actually... Man, to kind of put a single point on that would be pretty tough. But (laughs) but the whole thing was a huge growing opportunity. Um, There were several instances. uh, Hmm. That's sort of that's a tough question there. Uh, Well, tell me a little bit about the culture shock. I can imagine just going to Okinawa would be a dramatic culture shock. you know, were you were you the type of person that was um, eager to get off base and, you know, talk to the locals or, you know, did you have any language training? How did you adapt to just being overseas? Well, ma'am, I would I got to say I am formerly what is known as a weeb. I used to uh, I was very excited about going to Japan. Uh, it wasn't my first time out of the country either. That was in the Air Force. So we actually spent some time in Indonesia, but I knew that I really wanted to go. I, the first thing I did when I got the chance was go off base and try real ramen for the first time. And it was to die for, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. I, I bet you it doesn't taste the same back here now. <laughs> no. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta do some work to get you some ramen back here that tastes like that. 
Yeah, it's funny. Uh, not to go off topic, but here in Portland, Oregon, we have a place called Marukin, and they only have two locations, Tokyo and Portland, Oregon, and we love it. Wow. It's amazing. Um, great. Talk a little bit about uh, your transition. When you when you started to think about, you know, now's the time for me to get out. Like, what was that thought process for you, and was it difficult to decide whether or not you wanted to stay in or, or get out? So approximately three minutes into boot camp, I had this moment. <laughs> three minutes. <laughs> no, no. When no. they yelled I, at you on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they told me to get off the bus, I went, oh, well, time to get out. Uh, no. <laughs> exactly. So, so uh, no, it was actually about, mm, about a year and a half in. I was getting ready to go. I went from Okinawa to Camp Lejeune. And uh, once I got there, I, I you know, things, you know, obviously it was a, it was a different sort of culture shock, except it was purely military. I got there and we were under, I was under sort of a different, a different command structure than I was used to. And I just said to myself, no, nah, I don't, I don't think that this is where I really see myself going. And, um, I really think that I see myself going out and doing something like making video games or driving trucks. That's a good transition. So, you know, you're you're an entrepreneur. What was your first foray into being a you know business owner? Was the trucking company your first thing, or did you have other things before you got into the trucking company? I did have other things before the trucking company. Uh, as much as I hate to admit, multiple you know, I I am a back to back losing the business champ, but that's okay. I, it has worked out better in the end i promise the first business was uh gunhound games where i wanted to recruit a bunch of veterans to make video games and i thought that because i knew the stuff it would be easy to teach them the stuff because yeah. i'm yeah i'm obviously <laughs> i say to myself i'm obviously not the smartest crowd and what did you learn from that process? Like, I think you know, we all have our failures, and I think failure is our greatest teacher, to be honest. I mean, I have been an entrepreneur, and I've had wins, and I've had losses, but I, I, I have learned more from my losses than my wins. What do you think you learned from that experience? Um, man, again, so much. So the decision to close that one down came after a falling out with a business partner. Uh, one of the major things I learned was, well, uh, maybe don't base all of your requirements for someone to work with you off the fact that they're your high school friend. Uh, that's a, uh, it, it's should, it seems like it should be obvious, but again, not the, not the smartest crayon. Uh, other things I learned were just, I learned some of the basics, things like getting your first gig in a freelance economy and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cynthia, you, you've had some losses as well. I mean, it, it, can you talk about like contextually some of the losses you've gone through too? Yeah, for sure. Because I think both of us, you know, Zach and I are, you know, when you start off in the creative field, it's incredibly hard to one, get your foot in through the door to get, you know, gain your reputation within the industry and three, make a living long term. Because in this, in that industry, it's very much a gig economy. You know, there's a lot of freelancers, you're working project to project. It's incredibly hard to get a staff position. If you do get a staff position within one of the production houses, film companies or design firms, um, usually you're not doing what you love. You're overseeing right. development or you're 
you're doing strategy and you're not actually designing the game or creating the product or going out in the field and shooting video. And so like my business has pivoted from being um, strictly TV and film content company to being more consulting and I'm doing a lot more digital work now. So most of my income, most of the work that I get, the projects that I work on are um, digital solutions, uh, creating applications, doing AR, VR, 360 video for web content uh, and for mobile apps. So it's all in the context of like, what does the user want? What's How do you equate the context to um, what you're trying to say, the information that you're trying to 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 pass along to the end user. And then you constantly have to evolve and see what the industry, where the industry is going. And COVID definitely hit me hard. It hit a lot of people that I know hard. And uh, if it weren't for the fact that I, you know, self-taught and learned code and I was already working in the digital industry, it would have been even harder for me. So yeah, Zach, tell me a little bit about that time period when you decided to be an entrepreneur Um you know, pivot from your company to what you do now. So, uh, you know, we might've talked about this, you know, a little bit before, but part of it was that I just wasn't making any money. Uh, I was, so I was a truck driver. I was a one truck trucking company. There's a lot of those come to find out. They probably actually make up the majority of trucking companies, but basically 2019 was a really bad year for truckers. And I, I saw that and I, I was, uh, newly or freshly married. I don't know the word to use there, but I had just recently gotten married and I had a wife I needed to take care of um, and three dogs and two cats. I had a lot going on there. The decision to pivot actually came from, I was trying to find ways to speed up paperwork process because one of the things I hated most about trucking was paperwork. So I actually wrote a program that would fill out my paperwork for me, just a couple of inputs and boom, it's done. Um, and I realized that I really liked the programming way more than driving five to 600 miles a day. Um, I wasn't getting paid for that. I could get paid for this. I, I had a moment where I was like, this is actually useful. This thing I did, someone would actually try and buy this if I put some nice spinners on it and, uh, and, put a brand on it or something. Mm -hmm. So that made me say, well, I, that's what I should do. I've, I've done freelance, I've done freelance game programming before. When I go into something that has a big market, like web design or development, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to your earlier point about, you know, having co-founder issues, I think we've all gone through that. And it's interesting because there are two schools of thought there. Some say that it's really great when you find somebody who's your a really good friend and you go into business with them. And in most cases, I've seen that work really well because in most cases, if you have an argument, it you're able to kind of recover that relationship really easily. Uh, and then I've seen it go quite the opposite uh, for example, my first company was, or one of my first companies was a digital agency, and we did apps for companies like Pepsi and the Super Bowl and et cetera, et cetera. But it was, I went into business with somebody who I'd known for a long time uh, and thought, man, it's going to go great. It, I assumed it was going to go great because we had a great relationship as friends, mm -hmm. but it couldn't have gone worse. I mean, it was just awful. And so thinking about like going, like replaying the tape, Zach, do you regret going into business with friends or would you rather go into business with somebody you barely know? 
That depends. I have different friends now. <laughs> so sure. I have different friends now. I'm looking at going into business with a few friends of mine now, but it's uh, one, we all have a an interest in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. That That is, you know, the situation's changed a little bit. I don't think it would be bad to go into business necessarily with someone that you barely know, but I don't, I also don't necessarily know that that's wise. It's, sure. I think that you need to know the person that you're going into business with, especially if you, if both of you have a lot of skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I I've gone into business with somebody I, I knew as an acquaintance and that went okay. I mean, it still was a failed company, but not because of him. Um, but I mean, it's just interesting the, the, the conversation around because 80% of startups fail and they fail not because they had a great product or the timing was wrong or wasn't the right market. It was because of people, right? And I think yep. the interesting conversation around that is, and, and the learning lesson I've taken away is putting the right people in place, even at the early stages, the earliest, like we are just two people is so critical and not only building redundancy in whatever you're building, but building in redundancy of people. The, the lesson I learned from my second company, Brightwork, was when our CTO left, I didn't have the skill set to pick up the business. And as a result, we lost all our momentum and then it just basically died. And so in that, in that context, Zach, what have you learned as far as you know, putting in place things that help mitigate failure of your business as it relates to people? I like people, and it's, this is probably not a good metric for hiring someone, but I like people who are who can be serious and that are, I like workhorses. I, I consider myself a very hardworking person. So I, I like people who can work together very well. For me, the biggest, the biggest piece of that puzzle is just find someone that you can work well with. It's sort of a, and they're rare because that when you get to that level, it feels like uh, who's seen Pacific Rim, you're in the drift with that person. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great analogy. When um, in when we're talking about the entrepreneurial journey, there's a lot of things that people mess up, whether it's hiring the wrong person or uh, allowing a customer to kind of run rim shot over you or um, finding the wrong investor, whatever that, that looks like. What do you think has been your biggest mistake that had that you're like, I will never screw that up again? Uh, that it could have scuttled everything you, you worked for. I have two very major ones, obviously for the game company, I would be more worried about finding someone who is a better business partner, or instead of actually using a business partner at all, someone to handle all those things, I rather would have had someone who could do programming with me and actually help me with my stuff. Um, that would have been a lot more useful from trucking's perspective. There were, that one felt a little bit more inevitable, but I could always look back and find things that I did wrong. Um, things like I spent too much time at home, which is not really saying I spent that much time at home uh, in the truck. All the time that you spend at home is time that you're not spending making money and you have to make truck payments and things like that. So I would, you know, I'd, right before everything kind of went downhill, maybe I spent a little bit too much time at home. Uh, we'll call that a week out of every three months. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it's rough. And yeah, it, it, it's uh, truckers ain't got it easy. And uh, I would, I don't think that that's the thing that really killed me, though. I think the thing that ended up killing me was just 
that I, I really do think that maybe it was just the wrong time. Uh, I came in 2018 for, I actually started that, that trucking company in 2018 and it was at an all time high and the next year it swung the exact opposite direction. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, I, uh, when you're talking about, you know, bringing in the right people, I don't, I don't mean to keep going back to that subject, but it's, it's an, it's an, it's an important point because to your point, uh, finding the right person is really important because if you find somebody that's unwilling to do multiple things in the business, especially when you're just a team of two or three or a really small team, then you have an employee. If you have somebody that's willing to go be on a sales call one day and then they're fundraising the next or they're doing content marketing or they're blogging or they're you know helping with other pieces of the business, then that's, that's a business partner. That's a co-founder. And there's a distinct difference. And I think it's important to point that out. So I wanted to make sure we, we made that point. Something else I wanted to add, too, is I've found the best people to work with in in my field has been people I started off with professionally and then we became friends after, not the opposite. So, you know, when you know already the, the work dynamic that you have, the relationship dy- dynamic that you have, that you can ha- have that person's back and they'll have yours when you're working on a project and then you become friends after, that is like a long lasting relationship. And there are people that I still work with today who I've worked with, you know, five, 10 years ago and we keep coming back around working on projects together because we trust each other and we know how each of us work our strengths and our weaknesses so i i tend to work with people that balance me out that has the strengths where i'm weak and vice versa you know so um i think just this is a really valuable conversation because especially in the tech space we don't talk about uh social network or your you know the the people value and understanding how people operate we focus a lot on product and we focus a lot on deliverables and not necessarily the dynamic between yourself and the client or the dynamic between you and the people that you work with that either they're partners or investors or employees because that dynamic people can see that if you've got like that passion you know yeah zach if you were to build a company from scratch again what steps would you take to mitigate some of the things that you've learned, some of the mistakes that you've learned along the way, like would you, what kind of things would you put in place for say when you build a small team? Okay. So right now I'm actually built, I'm actually working on building a team and I, it, you know, it's actually just like you said, it's, I actually worked with them before I became friends with them. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. And the, and we became friends through the act of working together. It was, you know, it was a pleasure to work with them and they were always hungry to learn something else or to try something else or to pick up extra to try and make the project really sing. So like that was, that was kind of the first spot I hadn't, and I hate to admit, I hadn't actually noticed that pattern, but I think you put those, I think you put that in the words perfectly. Um, other things for building teams is, is that, uh, especially right now we're all very disconnected, but yeah. I think that something as simple as playing games together or doing actually taking time to be friends and actually see each other or react with each other in some way. That's not me trying to make, uh, trying to make some sort of weird mathematical equation work in an algorithm. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, one of the things that I learned along the way is, uh, and I learned this from, I was at Twilio for for a number of years, and I started there when we were a really small team. And one of the things that I felt really helped drive the growth of that business was the culture that Jeff Lawson and the team at an early stage 
created these things. They're called the nine things, and they're still on the website. I think if you just search Twilio nine things, you can still find them somewhere. I don't know how big of a impact it is now, but in those early days, there were things like being frugal and things like uh, wear the customer shoes. And one was draw the owl. And it was from a meme that he found on the internet, which was uh, how to draw an owl. Step one was draw two circles. Step two was draw the rest of the fucking owl. And it was really like, <laughs> it was it was figure it out, right? Be empowered enough to go figure it out. And what those, those uh, nine things did was really set us uh, or put together these things that help guide our, what we did every day. And so when somebody messed something up, we could go, okay, what are those nine things that we have on our website that we all agreed are really important that you followed uh, that led you to the decision you made? And so every company that I've created after that, really, we did that. We went through that same routine of like, let's create, let's, let's agree on things, on values that are important to everybody and then ensure that we hold each other accountable for them. And I'm not saying it mitigated any failure, but it certainly helped to um, set the right expectation to ensure that all the work being done was based on a mutual understanding of what we all felt was important. And so I, I don't know if that's something that you've experienced, Zach, or if it's something that you've experienced, Cynthia, where setting the culture or setting goals or objectives or just resetting expectations helped to mitigate tension in your companies. It, for, it has. For me, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say uh, it has, um, this is less of a entire business and more of a project management approach in my head anyway. But normally the first step I want to take is I remember it as commander's intent. And uh, when it was explained to me as this, you know, everyone down to the lowest man should understand this, you know, this about whatever they're doing. If they understand this piece, then even if they get lost in the sauce, they just have to remember that and they, their next actions need to be in relationship to that overall goal. Yep. Um, I think that's important on a company-wide scale as, as much as it is for a project. I think maybe the definitions change a little bit. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great point. So let's talk about your transition. You know, obviously, you, you had two great companies that you, you learned a lot from, and now you're in transition you're now, you've learned how to code. Talk about that journey because I think a lot of founders don't understand how important that skill set is. Like if you know how to code, you can pretty much do whatever you want. So why was that important for you to, to learn that skill set, which was clearly a new skill set for you? Yeah, okay. So that one, it was, it was sort of, it was an epiphany. I wanted to make games for years and I learned some basic coding there. It's com almost completely unrelated to what I do now, but knowing, knowing programming can take something that is, that can be debilitating. It can take, you know, if you're buried under paperwork, you can write up a script that can fill out most of that paperwork for you with a little bit of creativity and, you know, not expecting to build the next Microsoft office or something like that. You can absolutely just, change your life with a couple of simple scripts. Um, I think it's important kind of for everyone to know this. Uh, my dad's actually a huge proponent of something. I think it's called citizen coder or citizen developer. Uh, and it's just the idea that as time goes on, we're going to need people who are skilled in coding who don't necessarily have CS degrees. Yeah. Um, that was, that was something that made me decide 
you know, especially after after my my last time there uh, in trucking, I said, well, this is something I really enjoy, but also I think that this could change. I think this could change the game for everything. I think I think that this could change how I look at life beyond just the business aspect. Yeah. No, it's, I, and I, I firmly believe that coding is the new literacy. Like if you know how to code, that's the opportunities for you are, are really just wide open. And, and to your point, you know, you could be a litigator, you could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor. And if you know how to write a script to organize your workflows, then you make your, you add value to yourself. You add value to your company and you make yourself less dispensable at the end of the day. Right. Um, a friend of mine runs a game shop in Mobile, Alabama. One of the things he actually asked me about is, hey, I really want to make this HR program instead of instead of you know buying a different HR program. He wanted something custom for his specific situation. And there's a lot of situations like that where the, the software is out there, but it doesn't quite fit what you need. Yeah. And in times like that, if he knew how to code it, it, that's a relatively simple thing for what he wanted. Cynthia, in your experience, how important has that skill set been in your line of work? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I started off coding websites on the front end and then um, went into design after it, it was actually like hand in hand, the storytelling aspect, being able to understand users, but then yeah. tying that all together and connecting the dots. That's really key, you know, and you can go to school and learn that, but not everybody teaches you how to connect the dots, how to make something relevant. So, you know, Zach, like you've figured out how to code, but you've also figured out how to connect that with the need. And yeah. that's really what an entrepreneur does. I think it's, it's take, um, a solution and fill a need, but also be able to know how to pivot. Yeah. Yeah. And Zach, being a veteran and getting into coding, how did you find sort of your grouping? Because I, one of the things that I found really has helped new developers is finding a mentor that does two, one of two things. Either they keep you on track or they keep you motivated or they do both, right? So how was was that part of your journey transitioning into being a developer? Uh, yes. Two times over, I would say, uh, I did have a friend of mine or there, they were a mentor of mine who is now my friend who encouraged me to find a coding bootcamp. He, he said, well, you, you already know the basics. If you go through a program, you'll figure it out. And I know that there's a few that take like GI bill. Yeah. So I, I went to my good old friend, Google. I said, coding bootcamps that take the GI bill. And then I found, uh, I found a few different places. Uh, my favorite was coding dojo because it had C sharp and that was kind of the, that in Python were two languages I knew and that was it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I, I can, I'm already halfway through the class. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that experience for you going through uh, a coding bootcamp? Was it pretty similar to going to through regular bootcamp? Despite, uh, you know, minus, than... minus the yelling, I should just add that. <laughs> Well, I don't know. Maybe they do yell at you. <laughs> oh, no, I can't tell on that. No. Uh, <laughs> so that was interesting. It was probably more similar than you, than you might realize. I, in order to go to coding dojo, they were, I didn't want to go to an online school. I tried that before. Did not work very well for me. Yeah. I wanted to go in person and they had what I consider to be the best program for me because I wanted to learn more about more languages and so on. It's in Seattle. I live in Mississippi. 
the the one place that they could accept the GI Bill was in Seattle. So I we we really thought hard about it before we did something as crazy as what I'm about to describe. But I did pack up the car, drive up to Seattle with the plan of staying in the car the entire time. Come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. And how long yeah, is the program? December. How long is the program? It was well, it was three and a half months technically, but there was a two week gap there, so it was a whole four months. We I did come home a little bit early thanks to coronavirus. Oh no! Uh, but I mean, it's clear you enjoyed the process. It's clear that you learned a lot from the process. What, if anything, surprised you about it? How much I liked being around people again. I know that sounds weird, uh, but as a trucker, you don't spend a lot of time with other people. Yeah. Being able to reconnect with just people in general. Uh, there were all sorts of people there, some of them with prior experience, a lot of people without any experience whatsoever. Um, but it was wonderful because everyone there was brilliant in their own way. And I really started to see a lot of value in diversity. Yeah. It, it was, which is something I hadn't actually noticed before because. Well, in the Marine Corps, you're you're all kind of the same thing, but whether or not you're a nerd or not, you're all the same thing. You're all Marines. Yep. But out here, things are different. Yeah, Zach, uh, you know, I'm, I'm. Your journey has been really interesting. Uh, first of all, are you still in Seattle, or did you go back to Mississippi? Went back to Miss to Mississippi. There we go. About. I went in March okay. of 2020, came back. Uh, my wife flew up and we drove down together, uh, trying not to touch or talk to anyone we didn't need to. And that was, that was kind of its own, that was its own little harrowing journey. We had a snowstorm in Montana. It was a bonkers oh, time. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I went to, um, after boot camp. I went to uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi. So that's where I was stationed, which Katrina wiped it off the map. You're I don't think on it's the Navy there. base. I lived, that's my hometown. Pascagoula? That's Pascagoula nobody's hometown. hometown. That is insane. That's so funny. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is. I'm so sorry that it had to be that place. Wow. <laughs> it's not yeah, that it's, bad. It's well, not no, that bad. it's funny because, uh, you know, people ask me, well, what's it like in Pascagoula? I'm like, well, it's one of those places you drive through to get where you need to go. Like, you don't, there's nothing no. to see in Pascagoula. You have the Singing River Mall, but that's not even in Pascagoula. And, uh, it's in Gosha, yeah. Yeah. And so. It's not even there anymore. Oh, my God. Of course it's not. Uh, yeah, it's just, it was so, I was there from 94 to 97. And uh, yeah, it was just a, an interesting place to be. So uh, my condolences, Zach. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> there are worse places to be stuck and I've been there. So uh, it, at least you got that. The thing I do like about that place is uh, the food was phenomenal. If anything, I miss the food. Oh, good was, God. Uh, there was a place that had the best fried rice I've ever had. And I've been to Japan. Oh, oh my God. Oh, wow. I'll never forget. I just grab in like a bag full of crawfish and a six pack of beer and sitting on the, on the pier. Uh, those are some of my favorite memories of being, being down there. So, um, Zach, it's been so great getting to know you and hearing your story. Um, any parting words, anything that you would love to tell entrepreneurs about their journey? Because we have a lot of people that listen to the show that are new to the entrepreneurship journey. What, what would you tell your younger self about what to look out for in your entrepreneurship journey? Um. I don't know what I would say to my younger self, but if I, if I was going to talk to someone going into it now, I would say 
there comes a moment whenever you know that you're about to do this thing, that you're about to go through and actually attempt to do something that is vastly scary. It's kind of like if you've gone into boot camp, we knew that that was going to be scary. It's, it's a big unknown. No matter how much research you do, it's always going to be unknown. Um, despite two failures, I don't regret having that feeling at any time whatsoever. And I think that being able to take that jump is the most important piece, uh, which kind of sounds a little bit off, but it was just that there was a moment that said like, this is it, this is absolutely happening. And that's a, the thing I want to say is listen to that moment and go for it. Yeah. That's great if advice. If I could put it in context, like what your experience is, is what every entrepreneur goes through. And I really would sum it up in one word, fearlessness, because you have to be, even if you've had your business for 10 years or more, it's going stable. You never know if you're going to hit something like the pandemic that forces you to change your business operations. It forces you to pivot. And so almost like every day that I've been a business owner, I've had to be fearless. And there are times when I'm I'm kind of paralyzed, like, what am I going to do next? You know, and you learn from each other. And I, this is what I really like about the show is that we're sharing our knowledge, we're sharing our experiences and we're learning from each other because um, what we're experiencing now, you never know what we're going to experience next year. It could be something different that's going to be a global challenge. So um, kudos to you for continuing your journey and for telling your story. Yeah. Zach, where, so where, where can people find you online? Where, where can uh, Do you have a LinkedIn that you want to share? I do have a LinkedIn. Um, I, I don't know the, the, the uh, specific address to my LinkedIn. I also have a Twitter that is Professor Cowboy, uh, because that's what you call people from Mississippi now, I guess. Someone called me a cowboy because <laughs> I was from Mississippi and I was a teacher's assistant. So I'm now Professor Cowboy. That's awesome. I love it. Zach, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, guys, uh, Cynthia, we were back, I guess, right? We are back. I love We're it. Back on the horse. Back back on the cowboy horse. <laughs> exactly. uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we will be back next week. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.